before we dive this morning into the final letter that Jesus addresses to the seven churches of Asia Minor, a letter to the church of Laodicea, I want to take just a quick second and recap where we are concerning the movements of church history. What does this church of Laodicea represent? Now, the first three of these seven letters have largely come and gone, speaking of their, their movements. Ephesus, if you recall, representing the post-apostolic church, came and went, that second generation of church believers. Smyrna was the persecuted church, and while you can make the argument that the persecuted church remains historically, there was a bit of a season that that applied to. You have Pergamos, which was the Byzantine church. Again, it's hard to run across, you know, you don't run across a lot of Byzantine churches these days. Another movement that has kind of come and gone. So the first three are kind of historical, and yet the final four, as we've noted, are very much active and alive today. Thyatira represented Roman Catholicism. The church in Sardis epitomized the Protestant Reformation. The church of Philadelphia, which we looked at last Sunday, embodied the missional church of the 19th and 20th centuries. But lastly, this church, Laodicea, which we will look at this morning, typifies a more recent phenomenon. It's what we would call the seeker-friendly church model, or the attractional church. Now historically, we know that the city of Laodicea was located about 40 miles south of Philadelphia and about 100 miles to the east of Ephesus. The city itself was well known throughout the ancient world for really two important exports. Black wool, which was made for clothing, as well as a powder that was used to treat eye infections. Because Laodicea was located on an important trade route that minimized overhead. Her residents, the citizens of Laodicea, were incredibly wealthy. They were rich people. One example of the wealth of this city uh, would be noted in 60 AD, really a few years before this, when Laodicea was destroyed by a massive earthquake that hit the region. Nero, the emperor at the time, offered financial assistance, but the residents of Laodicea declined, choosing to rebuild their city instead, using their own resources to kind of keep Roman influence off to the side. Beyond being wealthy and having these exports, Laodicea was part of what was known to be a tri-city water arrangement. The two other cities involved were Colossae. Paul would write a, a letter to the Colossians. Colossae was 11 miles west of Laodicea. And Heropolis, which was six miles to her south. Laodicea had no natural aquifier. And because of this, the city was completely dependent, 100% dependent, on these two separate aqueducts coming from these two separate regions to bring water to the city. As far as the formation of the church in Laodicea, it would appear she was likely founded by the Apostle Paul. And according to Colossians chapter 4, verse 15, originally met in the home of a man named Nephus. In fact, four times in his letter to the Colossians. Paul will mention the brethren in Laodicea, as well as the brethren in, in Heropolis, these, these three cities. According to Colossians 4, verse 16, Paul it's likely had, had also written an epistle or letter to the church of the Laodiceans that he intended to have circulated through these, these three cities that we don't have a copy of today. Now, it appears that this Laodicean church, I mean, the Apostle Paul 
founded her, mentioned her. I mean, she's mentioned more than, than most of the other, the other cities with likely the exception of Ephesus. She began strong. This was a good church initially. And yet by the end of the first century, it's clear, it's evident from this letter written by Jesus that she had fallen far from her origins. In fact, in Jesus' letter to this church, it's recorded here in the last part of Revelation 3, Jesus will find nothing at all to commend this church for. Like in many ways, you could make the argument that Jesus' extensive criticisms would kind of tag Laodicea as being like the anti-Church of Philadelphia. The Church of Philadelphia was the faithful church. This was the, the unfaithful church. Now before we get to the text, I do want to take a few minutes and establish for you the historical context for the development of this church in our day. As the missional church, again represented by the Church of Philadelphia, the missional church of the 18th and 19th centuries, continued to preach God's word and send missionaries across the world equipped with the gospel. The 20th century not only changed the world, but challenged the church as a result in three dramatic ways. For starters, the human horrors and atrocities that were witnessed during two world wars that yielded approximately 100 million deaths, coupled with the brutal and seemingly pointless conflicts in Vietnam and Korea, these things produced several generations of Western men who were completely disillusioned when it came to matters of God, of spirituality, and the church. Even today, Jewish people are, are largely atheistic because of the horrors of the Holocaust. A history so, so rich in theology and, 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 and God's speak because of, again, horrors and atrocities left them indifferent and apathetic. Secondly, in an attempt to, to deal then with the fallout of this kind of rapidly changing cultural thing, this post-Christian culture, the church did something kind of tragic. She ended up subtly, but over time, convoluting her purpose by becoming politically and socially active, something that happened in the 20th century. Sadly, over the last hundred years or so, the evangelical church in the West has become known more for what she's against than what she's actually for. I'll give you just an easy example of this, historically, occurring with prohibition. When men came home from World War I, they found a church that was more interested in telling them what they could or could not drink than honestly seeking to help men deal with their genuine emotional wounds and spiritual needs. Like well-meaning, and you can read these the speeches, well-meaning evangelists like Billy Sunday, the ex-baseball player, railed against the abuses of alcohol, of which there are many. But he never spoke to the deeper spiritual wounds that were driving so many men to a destructive lifestyle. If you were in a foxhole with mustard gas in World War I, it leaves you with a scar. Something that you might turn to the bottle for. See, the strategy here was sincere, but it ended up turning off even more people, mainly men, to Christianity. Aside from these two movements, the horrors of the 20th century and the church becoming like politically and, and socially active as opposed to just preaching the gospel, the other challenge would arise as secular progressives 
eventually began to use science to attack the reliability of the Bible. All these three things happening at the same time. In 1925, a court case heard in the little town of Dayton, Tennessee, would be thrust into the national spotlight. The state of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes, commonly referred to as the Scopes Monkey Trial, would pit the, Bi the Bible and science against one another. And because the arguments presented by the state's prosecutor and the terrible witnesses that they called upon to mount a defense of a literal understanding of the Bible ended up being so poorly constructed, not only would the theory of evolution immediately gain scientific credibility, but the reliability of Scripture would take a massive hit in public opinion. Like, in the end, this and other similar developments would create a framework whereby a philosophy known as relativism would go mainstream in American society and academia. With no moral truth giver, mankind was left to try to ascertain if anything was really true at all. The challenge facing the church in the 20th century was a simple one. How do you reach a culture of people disillusioned with God because of the horrors of warfare how do you reach a group of people that are also alienated from the church on account of her social and political activism? How do you reach a group of people who, in addition to those two things, are also no longer confident in a fundamentalist view of the Bible as being God-given authoritative? Two approaches emerged. First, it should be pointed out that the Church of Philadelphia remained faithful to her mission throughout this period preaching God's word, and reaching the lost world through missions and evangelism. In turn, during the 20th century, you had church movements like Calvary Chapel pop up in the 60s and 70s, intentionally rejecting church traditionalism by modernizing style to reach a changing culture. Like for years, the mission statement of my dad's church in Stone Mountain was bringing the changeless gospel to a changing world. Men like Pastor Chuck, who started Calvary Chapel, dropped the pretentiousness of denominationalism by encouraging drugged-out hippies to simply come to church as you are. Modern music entered our worship. These leaders emphasized God's grace, a dependency on the Holy Spirit, the expositional teaching of God's Word, the Church of Philadelphia. Pastor Chuck's motto was simply teach God's Word simply. And that approach resonated in a culture that had a deep longing for truth. But sadly, another approach would also gain steam in the latter part of the 20th century. If the Protestant Reformation's problem was theology overreaching people, a dead orthodoxy, and the missional church's success was that balance between theology and reaching people, this final Laodicean church tragically emphasized reaching people over theology. Like in its historical context, it's actually easy to see how this would happen, all things considered. Like whether you want to call this movement the seeker-friendly movement or the attractional church model, doesn't matter. The leaders of these movements, this new wave of Christianity, they had a strategy. And the strategy 
was to intentionally create a church culture that was designed to be inviting, accepting, entertaining, and appealing to a very specific person, the unbeliever. As just one evidence of this, megachurch pastor Andy Stanley boasts that the goal of his church, North Point, is to be church for the unchurched. While these ministry models with their high-tech and slick marketing are wildly successful at attracting crowds, in order to create, though, a non-threatening environment, what did they have to do? Like, what was the drawback? The drawback was that they abandoned Bible teaching and they minimized doctrinal absolutes. In fact, the difficult topics of sin or hell or eternal judgment are largely avoided on purpose. Why? Because they're not exactly seeker-friendly. Now, though I don't want to be audacious enough to say that Jesus' letter to the church of Laodicea is solely pertinent to the seeker-friendly movement, there is no question, though, that the criticism that we find in Jesus' letter is profoundly applicable. Our purpose this morning is not to call out any specific church, but to really remind ourselves of the type of church we need to be by examining the characteristics of a church Jesus determined to be detestable. Let's dive in. Verse 14 of Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. So this is Jesus dictating to John the Apostle. These things says the Amen. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of creation of God. Of the creation of God. I know your works. That you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. We're off to a real positive start. Because you say, Jesus continues, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, Jesus says, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will, come to, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The first thing that we notice about this church in Laodicea was that while she was active, she lacked dis- like distinction. Verse 15, Jesus begins, he says, I know your works, your activity, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot, you're lukewarm. Like in the initial criticism, Jesus is actually using, he's employing an illustration to describe a spiritual condition that the Laodiceans historically would have really understood. As I mentioned in our intro, the city of Laodicea was dependent on two separate aqueducts to pipe in water, one from Colossae, one from Heropolis. Interestingly enough, by the time the cold water that originated in the higher elevations of Colossae and the hot water that was pumped from the hot springs of Heropolis 
finally reached Laodicea, the water was characteristically what? Lukewarm. That's why Jesus is using this picture. Because the distance that the water had to travel to get to the city from each of these locales, what initially started as either piping hot or freezing cold, had leveled off, what? To the temperature of its surroundings. In a sense, the water, this idea of being lukewarm, it's that it, it had become room temperature. Blah. Not distinct. The water was neither hot, nor was it any longer cold. It was just lukewarm. You might think that, that this church was probably going through the motions. Routines and programs. Spiritually, it should be noted that Jesus doesn't accuse them like he does some of the others of any type of, of rampant immorality or some type of crazy sexual sin or the doctrines of Balaam or Jezebel. But even then, this church, just they lacked zeal. No zeal for the things of God. They didn't have a heart for righteous living. They, they weren't active in the world doing the wrong things, but they, they were just apathetic. They didn't have a passion. To really follow Jesus, to be his witness in the world around them in a way that, that mattered. They weren't hot, but they weren't cold. They were just, eh. While the Laodiceans weren't full-blown heathens, what we would probably call cold, they also weren't fully committed to Jesus or, or how we would refer to as being hot. Like In a way, you could say that this church modeled what we often would refer to as, as a cultural Christianity. You know, when a person claims to be a Christian simply because they go to church uh, on Sunday, or at least on Easter and Christmas Eve, cultural Christianity is a big thing in the South. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian, and uh, we've been going to that church, that little Baptist church, for generations. It's where my parents go, my great-grandparents go. We got Ken buried in the front yard. Like, we're Christians, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a southerner, which makes me a Christian. Cultural Christianity. Christianity in name. You would say that this was a one-day activity, but maybe not a, a weekly lifestyle. Like spiritual life. You know, things characteristic of, of, of a heart to study God's Word on your own or spend time in prayer or, or worship the Lord becomes compartmentalized and this type of an environment, this type of culture to, to being kind of a Sunday morning church experience, but not a lifestyle, a way of living. Like to employ kind of another maybe common phrase to describe the spiritual condition, you would say that these Laodiceans, they were fence sitters. Like though they had enough church to feel morally superior and good about themselves, they also had too much of the world to really reap the benefits of a genuine relationship with Jesus. They were, they were straddling the fence. A little of this, but a little of that, a little of the world to kind of make me feel real guilty at church, but enough of church to kind of really ruin my enjoyment in the world. Like, I, I'm just kind of miserable. I'm in this middle. Like, their lives were tepid. Their spiritual indifference had spawned spiritual compromise. Not extreme subtle you know the brutal reality is that there was nothing about this church that differentiated her 
from the world. Again, she lacked distinction. She was not hot. She was not cold. She had leveled off to the temperature of her surroundings. And her honest attempt to be relevant to the world, this church had sacrificed the things that made her distinct and special within the world. This church had lost their flavor. Remember, we're to be salt and uniqueness, light. (laughs) Before I continue, let me just kind of apply this um, individually, like a personal bit of application. If you were to examine your life and just kind of just do a bit of an evaluation of you, you can do this on your own, but just think about it. An important question to ask is, does your life look any different than your unbelieving friends? Like, is there anything distinctly different about you? Unique. But here's why the seeker-friendly methodology is so dangerous. While the ministry model intends to create an environment designed to reach and appeal to the lost, which is, by the way, in and of itself, noble. It's not a bad thing. We want to reach the unbelieving world. The tactic, and here's why it's dangerous, and the attempt to reach the world, it creates an environment that also fosters the perfect conditions whereby a spiritually compromised believer can satisfy the need to feel spiritual without ever being challenged to be spiritual. I can go to church, feel good about myself, and never be challenged to deal with things that need to be dealt with. As Jesus says, spiritual lukewarmness thrives in such an environment. It is incredible to consider that Jesus would even go so far as to prefer this church be cold than to remain in the lukewarm condition. He says, I could wish that you were cold or hot. Be something. Why is this the case? Unlike those who are hostile to the things of God, spiritual indifference has the tendency to lull someone into a false sense of their own spiritual security. They're dying. They just don't know it. You know, the second thing that we should note about this Laodicean church is that she was also characterized, so she lacks a distinction, but she's also characterized by a serious self-deception. Jesus continues, verse 17, he says, You say, I am rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing. And do not even know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, the alarming thing about this community of Christians was the real serious disconnect, right? Between what they believed God thought of them and the reality of what God actually thought of them. Like, in a sense, they were delusional. Like, because they were falsely equating material prosperity as being the evidence of spiritual blessing, The church had reached the false conclusion that God was pleased with them. They were rich. They they were not in need of anything. The reality is what they saw as God's evidence of God's pleasure. God was actually deeply sickened by them. Like it was the opposite. Again, self-deception, self-delusion. While the Laodiceans believed that they were spiritual. While they believed that they were effective because, hey, they were rich. Or literally in the Greek, they were abounding in resources. I mean, this was a church that had it. 
They had the facilities. They had all of the tools. They were rich, abounding in resource for ministry. And they were wealthy, which, which means they, they were richly supplied. I mean, they had deep bank accounts and pockets and donors to the point that they were in need of nothing, or literally, they were in need of no one. But Jesus says that they were actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Sadly, I believe that that many churches today are equally self-deceived. You see, they will point to large attendance numbers and vast financial resources as being the evidence of what? A successful ministry. But they fail to recognize that neither resources or money, attendance or money, are the metrics that Jesus uses when he evaluates his church. Like to this point, it's amazing to think, as we've already seen demonstrated in these letters, Jesus found the church of Smyrna, a church that was because of persecution, trial and tribulation, extremely poor, remember? He found the church of Smyrna, a church extremely poor, and the church of Philadelphia, a church with only a little strength, recall? Much more commendable than he did the church of Laodicea, a church that actually was rich and without any need. Thirdly, the church of Laodicea was biblically ignorant. Self-deception, lack distinction, biblically ignorant. Please notice one of the core components of Jesus' criticism which kind of does explain why they were so self-deceived and off in their self-assessment. He says, look at the coupling within the letter. He says, you say, you say. But then he says, and do not know. You know, while it's true that this church was delusional as to the true nature of their spiritual condition, they were bankrupt, lukewarm, tepid. We have to consider what had fostered such a false perception of themselves. I mean, you wouldn't want to be so off in your own assessment, right? Yeah, I think I'm doing really well. Jesus, what do you think? I think you're doing terrible. Whoa! I'm off in my assessment. Like, if I can't make an appropriate assessment, then I'm going to have a hard time getting to the the appropriate conclusions. So, So how did this church get, you say you're rich and this and this, but you don't know that you are this. Like, how was there such a disconnect? To be allowed in such a place. I hope you know that when it comes to your faith, your Christian beliefs, your spiritual condition, how you live a life of godliness, when it comes to how a church should function, or the, the way believers are to reach the lost around us, when it comes to everything really of your spiritual life, you need to know this. This is going to kind of prick. This is going to hurt a little because it runs so contrary to our kind of social media universe that exalts what you think. When it comes to your Christian life, what you think or what you say doesn't matter at all. Like when it's all said and done, what matters more than anything else? It's what Jesus says about his church, about how to live a life after him, about how to follow him, about your life and your marriage. Like, it's not about what you say, it's about what he says, which is why it's so vitally important a church that wants to be Philadelphia teaches the Bible. You don't need my opinions on things. 
or my extrapolations or my grand insights. We need what Jesus has to say. I hope you don't come hoping to get a word from Zach. If you are, you'll be, you'll be disappointed, not because you got one, but because of what it was. I hope you come knowing that we're going to open the Bible and hopefully Jesus, God, your Savior and friend speaks to you. Like, that's why we're here. You don't want me to pontificate. You didn't even know I knew that word. You want, you want the creator. The God whose word spoke all things into existence from nothing to speak into your life hoping that the things that aren't in you might come into existence through that same miraculous, powerful word. It's why we must teach the Bible. Because when we do that, people, it helps us not to fall prey to self-deception. Like the Laodiceans believed that their riches were to be seen as the evidence of spiritual favor when that position had no scriptural bearing at all. Like they didn't know why. They weren't studying the Bible. If they had studied the Bible and had biblical knowledge and understanding, they would not have seen their riches as the evidence of this because the Bible never says that. They would have seen other things. Like here's a, here's a key truth that you'd be wise to never forget. Because the Bible is brutally and totally honest about your spiritual condition, the Bible is the only place that you can go in this world to get a proper assessment of yourself. It's not a therapist. It's not a guru. It's not a pastor. The Bible is the truth. And it's where you can go to get the truth about you. In James chapter 1, we're exhorted and I love this picture. It's, it's, it's apt. So therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his face, his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. We go to the word of God to get the assessment of ourselves. <laughs> this will be fun. What does the Bible say about you? This is what the Bible says about you. And I'll include myself. The Bible is crystal clear that apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus' work on the cross, Apart from his amazing grace, being extended to you in spite of you, apart from all of that, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what you are apart from Jesus. Which, again, is why the Bible isn't necessarily taught in seeker-friendly churches. You see, for the unbeliever, the Bible, and, and really even for the believer, let's be real, for, for all people, the Bible has difficult things, challenging things, often hard things to say. Sometimes it's not friendly, especially to the godless. You see, contrary to what the world has to say about such things, please know, God does not accept you the way that you are. That's the truth. Like your status quo, whether you're an unbeliever or even a believer, your status quo is not okay with, with him. In fact, 
God deliberately sent his son Jesus to die on a cross. Why? Not to leave you the way that you are. He did that to transform you into someone completely different than who you are. You know what God's plan for your life is? Like the big plan. His will is to completely change you from who you are and to someone that better reflects the image and likeness of his son Jesus. That's a work that will continue. It's a journey. It's a race, Paul would say. It begins at the moment of conversion, and it continues. Christian, if you're okay with where you are right now, no, Jesus isn't. Because there are probably some aspects of your life, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, aren't Christ-like. So we're in this process of transformation, this process of being regenerated, this pro- that won't be completed until we're called home. Aside from the fact that attending a church that teaches the Word not only protects you from self-deception, but it's, it's God's Word that also protects you from the tendency of being spiritually indifferent. King David, he penned in Psalms 1, verses 1 through 3, Psalms. That was a Joe Biden joke, sorry. David, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, God's word. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. God's word, the teaching of God's word, keeps you from self-deception because it gives you the truth. It also keeps you from indifference because it's the very basis by which we grow and are transformed. You know, I have found that it is virtually impossible to attend a church where you're taught God's word and still live a life of indifference and compromise. Like, I'm actually, I'm, I attended a Bible teaching church my entire life at my father's church. So I have a bit of an experience there. And then when I was a youth pastor, I taught God's word. That's what we did. It was our thing. So I watched it there for about a decade. And since 2013, really backing up to 2012, we've been teaching God's word faithfully here. I can say this with, with I've had a big enough case study. That God's word will do one of two things, always. It will either drive a man or woman in sin to repentance. Or it will drive that person away from that church. Always. It always happens. You either come to this church and God moves in your heart and works in your life and God's word, you're planting it down and you're changing and you're growing and and things are, are, are happening and you embrace that. Or you're like, that guy's a jerk. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm out. It's one or the other, always. Again, we're not really seeker-friendly because you're either going to be found or you're going to get lost. It's the truth. Finally, we see from the text that Laodicea was a church so self-centered that they were no longer Christ-focused. And this is another danger. Notice again verse 17 where the Laodicean self-evaluation and pride. We're like, where their pride was rooted. They said, look at it. I am. 
You might want to circle those two words. I am, and then they say rich, I've become wealthy, I've need nothing. And yet, in verse 20, what happens? Jesus says to them, you say I am, but then he says, I stand at the door and knock. I am these things, and Jesus is like, yeah, and I'm out here. Like this church was self, so self-consumed with what they had that they were completely oblivious to the reality that Jesus wasn't even there. He was on the outside looking in. You see, this church was more focused on what they had, their ministry resources, what they were doing, their work, than whose presence they were in. Jesus. Like, in the end, this church was more about reaching them than it was about seeking Him. Which is why He gives this exhortation. I stand at the door, I'm knocking. You know the word Laodiceans? It's an interesting word. It's a compound, which means the rights of the people. That's what it means, Laodiceans. Like in this church, it was the people who ruled. And Jesus and the authority of his word took a back seat. You know, it's a truth that the degree to which a church is man-centered, focused on men, is often the degree to which that church is no longer Christ-centered. You know, the heart can only worship one master. I I should add just, again, in way of application, that that the degree to which you're me-focused, me-centered, selfish, has a direct correlation to the amount you're dependent upon Jesus. Like, your marriage doesn't need more of you. It needs more of Jesus working through you, loving your spouse. Like if your solution to a marriage struggle is more of you, if it's on me, you're in trouble. But if it's on him, well, there's your solution. Again, the the problem can't be the remedy, and you're the problem. Tragically, instead of asking Jesus what he wanted his, his church to be, how he wanted his church to reach the lost, what he found to be pleasing and his church, these Laodiceans, they devised their own model of church ministry with the intention of reaching men by pleasing man. And Jesus hated it. Look at his warning. I mean, the warning was, it's, it is severe, isn't it? Verse 16, Jesus says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You know, people often think, why, why are you called Calvary 316? Oh, must be John 3.16. I'd like to say it's Revelation 3.16. Because you're neither hot nor cold. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Like, it's a good warning for a church community. You know? Like, we should be careful. This phrase, the idea of vomit. I will vomit. It describes the, the, and I'll say this as tactfully as I can, the violent expulsion from the body, of that which is making the body sick. You know, this type of ministry approach and the type of of spiritual result that's found, exemplified in the Laodicean church and that of the seeker-friendly model, it makes Jesus, it's what he's saying, it's like, you make me ill. Like, I'm sick to my stomach. Let me explain why that's the case. At least, why I think it is. You know, contrary to popular opinion, And again, this is a popular opinion. You've actually probably been to a church and you've heard this said. Contrary to opinion, 
Nowhere in the Bible is the church called or commissioned to be a hospital for the sick. Again, you've, you've probably heard that say, our, our church, we're a hospital for the sick. You know, instead, biblically speaking, the church is called to be a prepping center whereby believers are equipped to go into the world to care for the sick. You know, it was in the old covenant model whereby the world was instructed to come to a physical place, a temple, to encounter God. And yet the new covenant, God's design, Jesus established what? It wasn't, may the lost world come to a a building to be reached. No, 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 no. It was that Jesus established in the heart of every single follower his temple. He put his temple into the hearts of you and I. And then what did he do? He sent us into the world to encounter the lost. The old covenant, come to a physical place to encounter God. The new covenant, I'm going to put me in people and send them out into the world. It's the opposite approach. You see, what makes the seeker-friendly model, I believe, so disgusting to Jesus is that while it, it might yield high conversion rates, it's making the church sick. And here's why. Because the church is being derelict to fulfill her God-given duty of teaching the Bible to equip saints, she in turn creates a scenario whereby believers are no longer encouraged and exhorted to go out and do their mission, taking the gospel into the world. The church is doing for the believer what the believer should be doing, and the church is not doing for the believer what she's been called to be doing. It's all backwards. It's upside down. You see, this church... This church is not failing, this church was failing to equip believers. Why? Because they were doing their job for them, and in turn, what resulted? A lukewarm congregation. The church failing in her mission, and the people no longer being exhorted to do theirs. Like the simple reality is when a church focuses on reaching the lost, instead of equipping saints to reach the lost, The body of the church becomes ill. It becomes sick. For a church to be healthy, you're not going to find it always in in numbers or deep pockets. But a church is healthy when the emphasis of that church, of the service of that church, and again, this is what we call a church service, right? It's a service to the church. A church is healthy when the service focuses on equipping believers to fulfill their ministry in the world, and their world, by doing what? Teaching God's Word. And then your role is to go into the world with a desire to reach the lost with the Gospel. Uh, keep in mind, the Great Commission, you know the Great Commission, go into the world, making disciples of the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, the Great Commission, not suggestion, not omission, commission, what we're called to do, was given to Christians and not the church. You know how I know that? The church actually didn't start for about 10 more days. It was given to individual followers that would make up the church and not the institution of the church that was designed by Jesus to equip Christians to fulfill the Great Commission. It should be noted that following so many difficult criticisms... Again, this is a tough letter. It really is. Jesus begins his closing 
with this line in verse 19. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. You know, after everything that Jesus says, he wants this church to know, these believers to understand that it was his love that was motivating him to speak the truth. Like You can hear his passion again when he says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Like You feel the passion in that. I'm here. I'm knocking. Just open. While these Laodiceans had been doing church without Jesus, that could easily be remedied, right? Like All they had to do was just open the door and let him back in. In the original language, this word knock, it's in the active tense, like meaning that Jesus is at the door, and what is he doing? He is gen- gently but continually knocking. He's knocking. But notice, and, and this is something that's important, you might say, okay, so Jesus is knocking. Zach, how is Jesus knocking? I don't hear it. How's he knocking? Notice what he says. He says, I stand at the door and knock, and then what immediately follows. If anyone hears my voice, There's no question that it was Jesus' word or his voice that was doing the knocking. Do you hear what I have to say? I'm knocking. I'm at the door. And why was Jesus knocking? He says, says, I will come in and dine with him. The phrase dine with, it spoke of of an intimate, a relational exchange. In Eastern culture, eating, sharing a meal with someone was a genuine act of commonality. It it indicated oneness. It was personal. You see, Jesus here, he isn't like, I want something from you. I'm at the door, I'm knocking. I need need something, like open the door so we can get the affair. No, what does Jesus want? You, that's all he wants. A relationship with you. (laughs) Closing, don't forget who was doing the knocking. As he's done with all of these letters, he begins by writing, these things says, no, the amen. I love that phrase, the amen. You, know, you use the phrase amen a lot you know, at the end of your prayer, but do you, do you really know what it means? The word amen, it means so be it, or that's true. So when you hear a prayer and everyone, the church says amen together, you're affirming that you agree with what was prayed. So be it, that's true. Don't ever say amen to a prayer you didn't like because you're being disingenuous. This church, the amen. What was the remedy? They needed to get back to seeing Jesus' word as true. He also calls himself the faithful and true witness. The church needed to remember also that the only way to reach the lost, like how, do you, how do we reach the lost? It's not through creative marketing or relevant presentations or a diluted form of Christianity, heaven forbid. How do we reach the lost? Jesus. (laughs) He is the faithful and true witness. Like the remedy was Jesus, more of Jesus. If we want to reach the world, we don't reach the world by lowering our temperature to our surroundings. We reach the world by being on fire for Jesus because it's Jesus who reaches the world. You're no one's savior. I hope you know that's not your name tag. It's not your job to save anyone. Your job is to expose people to a Savior that they have to choose whether or not they want. What kind of Savior are we presenting when our lives are lukewarm and filled with compromise? Not the true one. 
Finally, Jesus refers to himself. He says that he is the beginning of the creation of God. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, some other cults, twist this to, to mean things that it doesn't and uh, things that the text doesn't imply. Like the word, the beginning. It doesn't mean that Jesus was the first, like he was the first of the creation of God. No, no, no. That's not what the beginning means. It means that, that he existed before, that he transcends, that he was there before the beginning of creation. He is the beginning. He was there. When it all started, he was already there. He is the, well, to, you, to use a, a philosophical phrase, he is the uncaused cause. The word can be translated as the origin, the beginning of the creation, or the origins of it. Jesus is called in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and then that Word, like 16 verses later, became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was Jesus. But then you go back to Genesis 1, and it was by the Word that God created all things, that Jesus was the Creator. By His Word, He's the Word, the Creator. The idea here is that this church, in addition to, to remembering that God's Word was the truth, and that it was through Jesus. Jesus was the remedy to the world, not their ingenuity or their riches or their, their, their ability. But they needed to get back to the main thing. They needed to keep the main thing the main thing. Like pleasing Jesus, the origins of it all, is infinitely more important than pleasing men. I don't know if our church will ever be a big church or not. That's not our intention. We just want to be a faithful church. A church that teaches God's word. For in such a day, that's what the world needs. Can't help but notice that in spite of these strong words, there was still potential, right, for this church to be used in mighty ways. In addition to responding to his voice and opening the door, all they had to do, Jesus says, was be, be zealous or burn with a zeal and repent. Change your mind, change your direction. You know, while Jesus gave this church the strongest of all the criticisms, he also gave her the, the, the most glorious potential promises. In verses 18 and 20, Jesus provides a list of things that would come with their relationship with him if they responded to his invitation and repented. I'll just read through them quickly. He says, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, or pursue heavenly treasure instead of temporal riches. I will make you really rich. And, and white garments, I'll give you white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness not, might not be revealed. Remember, in Laodicea, they were known for, for developing this black fabric that was used in clothing. And so Jesus is like, you have these black garments, I will give you white garments. An everlasting righteousness, instead of the, the, the black ones of self-confidence and foolish pride. He also says, I'll anoint your eyes with an eye salve. Remember, he criticizes them for being blind. He says that you may see. He promises to give them a, a spiritual sight in the place of their spiritual blindness. He also promises, again gloriously, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And I also overcame, sat down with my father on his throne. Like what a radical, a radical promise. We'll, we'll get to that next Sunday. How did Jesus overcome? If you overcome... You'll sit with me on my throne as I overcame. How did Jesus overcome? Jesus obeyed his father's word. That's what he did. In a famous sermon titled, An Earnest Warning Against Lukewarmness, Charles Spurgeon described the lukewarm church the following way. And it's a little lengthy. 
Um, but I couldn't replicate this in my wildest imaginations. So just listen for a minute. The lukewarm church. They have prayer meetings, but there are few present, for they like quiet evenings at home. When more attend the meetings, they are still very dull, for they do their praying with very deliberate and are afraid of being too excited. They are content to have things done decently and in order, but vigor and zeal are considered to be vulgar. They may have schools, Bible classes, preaching rooms, and all sorts of agencies, but they might as well be without them, for no energy is displayed and no good comes of them. They have deacons and elders who are excellent pillars of the church. If the chief quality of pillars is to stand still and exhibit no motion or emotion, the pastor does not fly very far in preaching the everlasting gospel, and he certainly has no flame of fire in his preaching. The pastor may be a shining light of eloquence, but he certainly is not a burning light of grace, setting men's hearts on fire. Everything is done in half-hearted, listless, dead ways, as if it does not matter whether it is done or not. Things are respectably done. The rich families are not offended. The skeptical party is appeased, and the good people are not quite alienated. Things are made pleasant all around. The right things are done, but as to doing them with all your might, soul, and strength, a Laodicean church has no notion of what that means. They are not so cold as to abandon their work or to give up their meetings for prayer or to reject the gospel. Neither are they hot for the truth, nor hot for conversions, nor hot for holiness. They are not fiery enough to burn the, the stubble of sin, nor zealous enough to make Satan angry, nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither cold nor hot. Yeah, if you're not facing any opposition from the enemy, it's likely he's not threatened by you. you know, Satan only attacks those in whom he's threatened by. Opposition, persecution, trial and tribulation is often the evidence that you're threatening the enemy. That his dominion is under threat, under assault, under attack. Are you making such a difference? Friend, if we want to be a church that Jesus delights in, I, I want to be a part of that type of church. If you don't want to be a part that Jesus is made ill by, like we must embrace our distinctiveness within this world and not be lured into a false sense of being what we're not or some success. Like our pastor, his name's Jesus, is more concerned with the process than the results. Like this church that saw themselves as being rich and wealthy and in need of nothing, Jesus determined to be wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And in the end, spiritually, he says they were lukewarm. May that not be said of us. You know, beyond this passage being a healthy reminder as to what type of church we want to be, you know, the practical application, it, it's, it's real. You know, a lukewarm, how does a lukewarm church exist? A lukewarm church only exists when the people who make up that church are themselves lukewarm. The church is the people. And the condition of the church is reflective of the conditions of the people. Friend, I encourage you that if you feel a subtle chill of spiritual apathy, lukewarmness, creeping into your own heart, 
Pray for the Holy Spirit to be sent to fill you anew and to set your heart ablaze. In closing, as we kind of wrap up our time here in a, in a larger series through the book of Revelation, but wrapping up our time in these seven letters, which are unique and distinct, pretty radical, Jesus, the actual words of Jesus. It's important, just to recap, like Ephesus, may we abide in God's grace alone and never fall into the trap of believing our works really matter. May we never leave our first love. And like Pergamos, may we never fall into the trap of allowing the gospel to be twisted into the justification of sin or immoral behaviors, the grace so I can do anything. May we, like Thyatira, actively reject any unholy union that might steal from Jesus the affection that he's due as our only groom. Like Sardis, may we avoid the dead orthodoxy that places our theology over people. And like Laodicea, may we reject the misgiving that reaching people is more important than teaching the Bible and pleasing Jesus. Like in the end, while we may be poor and weak in the eyes of this world, it is my heart, my desire, and I'll speak for the other elders, that Calvary 3.16, if Jesus was writing us a letter today, that Jesus would say, yes, you might be considered poor, yes, you might be considered weak, but you are rich. And you have a strength. And you're faithful. Like the church of Smyrna that was enduring tribulation and Philadelphia that taught his word. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word and what it says to us.